Hi, Pastor John here. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. You know, in Matthew 11:28 and 29, Jesus says, Come to me, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, this is a promise, but it's not just any promise. It's a promise that comes from a mighty, faithful, and true God. Today, we're going to look at how this promise plays out in the life of a woman called Naomi, who lived about 900 years before Jesus took on flesh. So let's take a little bit of a different look at the book of Ruth. Hey, look, before we get to our passage for today, let me just mention a few things to you. Uh, it's time for us to fire up, fire up our outreach into the community, our service into the community. Uh, so we've got a number of activities planned. We've got the movie night coming up. This is, this is a movie with a powerful gospel message. Um, I would encourage you to buy tickets. They're not cheap. Uh, but uh, let me tell you something. The movie is just superbly made. And I want to suggest to you that you buy an extra ticket and give it to a friend and have them come. Uh, so we've got the movie night coming. We're going back to the shelter. Um, we're going to do stories in the park in the wintertime. We'll do the stories in the park Christmas. Uh, we'll have the Warrington Festival coming up. So we need you. We need you here to help us. You folks that are tuned in, I want to encourage you, if you can come to church, come on to church. We need your help. If you can't come to church, we understand. Uh, we need your prayers. We need your, your donations. Uh, we need to function as a body. Uh, but the community is waiting for the good news, brothers and sisters, and we have it. So I want to encourage you to, as we move into these efforts, let me know if you can help out at the shelter. Let me know if you can help out at the festival uh, in September. We'll have a booth up there. We'll be handing out water and cookies again and games for the kids. Uh, the the community is waiting, and we're ready. Amen? Amen. All right. All right. Yes. So I'd like you to turn to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. Right there after Judges, after Joshua. We're going to be in verses 1 through 5. While you're turning, let me talk to you a little bit about the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Jesus begins his ministry in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, he delivers his Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. He sets the parameters for his earthly ministry there, and it's out of the box, and it is earth-shaking. It also sets the tone for his ministry, uh, which we find out is going to be quite a challenge to understand everything he's saying and to appropriate it into our lives. By chapter 9, he's teaching with amazing authority. People are beginning to recognize this. He's calling disciples. He's healing the sick. Uh, he's casting out demons and overall showing up the religious leaders of the day and embarrassing them. It's just the beginning. In chapter 10, he chooses the rest of what they call the apostles. First time we see that term. And he tells them life is going to be tough, but not to fear that he will be with them. We see, we see do not fear 365 times in the scripture. Do you think there might be a message there? A daily encouragement not to be afraid. Then in chapter 11, he kind of takes over for John the Baptist, and he makes it clear that his ministry is going to be different than John the Baptist. And all this shakes folks up, and near the end of chapter 11, he wants to assure those that are following him that it's going to be okay. So he says this in Matthew 11:27: All things have been handed over to me by my Father, 
And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, verse 28. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now this morning we're going to zero in on two phrases here. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. It's not just a promise. It's a promise from our living Father in heaven. It's a promise from God. And we're going to see how this promise plays out in the life of a woman called Naomi, who lived about 900 years before Jesus utters these words. So the book of Ruth is an incredible tale of a young Moabite woman who marries into a Jewish family in Moab, We'll tell you about that. She endures incredible tragedy and loss, but remains committed to what's left of her new family. Remains committed to her mother-in-law, Naomi. That's our sermon for today. This is number eight in our series, Lessons for Today from the OT. So Ruth's story turns out amazingly well. Many of you are familiar with it. You probably know how all this works. But the book of Ruth, if we take a look at it, is as much about Naomi as it is Ruth. I mean, it starts out with Naomi, it ends with Naomi. Today we're going to look at Naomi's struggle. We're going to see Naomi's distress in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We will see Naomi's journey in chapter 1, verses 19 through through, uh, 412. So we've got a a lot of room to cover there. I'll have you out of here by 5. And we're going to see Naomi's peace in Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. So let's take a look at Naomi's distress. What happened to this woman? Ruth chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, now the author of Ruth is trying to give us a context for what's going on in the lives of these people. And it's the days when the judges ruled. Now, I don't know if you've read the book of Judges or not. Uh, but if you do, it opens up with, it was a time when people do, did what seemed right to them. And it closes with, it's a time that people did what seemed right to them. And the judges, is, you know, there's some good judges, but there's a whole lot of bad ones. And it, it's a time of apostasy. A time when people are turning away from God. Sometimes they turn back, but by and large they turn away. And everybody's doing what seems right to them. Is that a description of what we're living in today? Oh, that's old-fashioned stuff. There's nothing new under the sun, brothers and sisters. So the author wants us to know what type of environment these people lived in. So in the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, this was most likely viewed as God's judgment upon Israel. It seemed to be localized. Uh, And a man of Bethlehem in Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So, watch this now. Deuteronomy chapter 30 says that if there's a famine in the land, if there's plague that comes on the land, that the people are to repent. They're to turn back towards God. So, 
this man's sojourn in the Moab is a commentary on the land of Israel. It's, it's also a commentary on this man. We don't know who he is yet. But the author wants us to know that God's judgment has fallen upon Israel and there are people running from it. There are people trying to escape it. They live in the promised land. They have been promised that God will provide for them. God has told them that if you turn against me, if you begin worshiping idols, if you begin, if you begin worshiping other things, then judgment will fall upon you. And when that happens, it's my signal to you to repent and come back. There are people in Israel that are not repenting. They're running. So this guy runs. He runs to a nation that is historically at odds with Israel. And again, it's meant to be a reflection of the general attitude of the people of Israel in a time of judges. God's judgment falls. Instead of turning back towards God, they run away from him. Verse 2, the, man, the name of the man was Limelech. Oddly enough, that kind of loosely translates to God is king. He's acting like everything but that. And the name of his wife is Naomi. Loosely translated, God is pleasant. And the names of the two sons, I just love this. First one is Malon. Okay? That means sickly. I'm going to name my son sickly. And Kilion, that means frail, mortal. They were Ephrathites and from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, again, they have abandoned the promised land. They have abandoned the land that God rules over. And they have moved into a pagan land because, because there was a famine. Now, the reason they moved was because they didn't feel like God was taking care of them. Like they had to do something. There's no food here. We've got to go where there's food. Well, wait a minute. There's some food right over there in Moab. Don't know what was going on in Judah, but there's not that much space between them. But there was food in Moab, and uh, apparently crops in Moab, but none in Judah. So they're going to go take care of themselves and make sure. And Elimelech is probably thinking, oh, I need to provide for my family. I need to do something. Just need to keep this in mind. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Hmm. And she was left with her two sons. Now, again, to the traditional Jew, this would look like the judgment of God falling upon Elimelech for having moved away from the promised land. Those took Moabite wives. If you see the progression here, Elimelech takes his family to Moab. Elimelech dies. His sons marry Moabite wives. This is prohibited in the law. So everything that happens is going against what God has told them. Elimelech and, and the husband of Naomi died. She was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, which loosely translated means hardened, double-minded. And the name of the other was Ruth which means beautiful friend. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon, both sickly, and Kilion, frail, died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. 
This woman's in trouble. This is a bad situation. No husband, no sons, living in a foreign and hostile land. You think the Moabites didn't know that they were enemies with with the Jews? Naomi hears things are better in Judah, decides to go back to her hometown. And at first, the the daughters-in-law want to return with her, but she dissuades them. She says, you know, I'm an old woman. What, am I going to produce husbands for you? It's too late for that to happen. She encourages them to stay in Moab and find new husbands. And we get a a glimpse of Naomi's pain in verse 13 of Ruth 1. She says, My daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. So we see this bitterness. Orpah turns back. Now, it won't be too hard on Orpah here, although her name means hardened. But, you know, she's being asked to go live in the land of her enemies and worshiping a God that she doesn't worship. She would look like a traitor to the Moabites. So, in a worldly way, it looked like maybe she's making a wise decision. Ruth clings to Naomi and insists that she's going to stay with her no matter what. Ruth has made this commitment. She says, let your God be my God. Your people be my people. I not only married your son, I married your family. So it's incredible testimony from this young girl. So they head for Judah. They're still mourning their losses, devastating losses. Hoping to find a home among the people of God. And that takes us to Naomi's journey. Starting in verse 19 of Ruth 1. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. There was a buzz in the town. Naomi's back. Naomi left. She was a, a robust, pleasant woman, vital. And she returns racked with grief and age beyond her years. People are going up and going, are you man, Naomi? Now, you know what they were saying. You know, what happened to you? I was in Cleveland earlier this week. And... I saw somebody in the hallway that I hadn't seen for maybe 15 years. And as he was approaching me, I think, oh, he looks bad. <laughs> and he came up, he gave me a hug, and he said, what happened to you? Said, Pardon me? <laughs> he said, you look bad. And now I'm like, what? <laughs> but he's trying to say, you don't look the way you did the last time I saw you. And I'm trying not to say, well, neither do you. But this is what's happening to Naomi. She said, Naomi, we hardly recognize you. Are you okay? What happened? We've heard some stuff, but we weren't sure whether or not it was true. So she said to them in verse 20, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara. I'm no longer pleasant. Naomi renames herself. She is now bitter. She's now grieving. But watch what she says. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, you can open up any number of of commentaries, and they'll tell you that Naomi has, has turned against God. 
I don't think that's what's happening. Matter of fact, I don't think that's what's happening at all. Note the phrasing here. She calls God the Almighty, the Shaddai, the Mighty One. She recognizes who God is. She says, the Lord Yahweh has brought me back, has led her back to Bethlehem. And she's come. She says, the Lord has testified against me. And perhaps, just perhaps, Naomi is thinking, this is what happens when you disobey God. She's not railing against God, but she admits that the Almighty has brought, has brought calamity upon her. It's a tough confession. Matter of fact, everything that's happening to Naomi is tough. She's saying, I'm hurting. This is painful. But in the middle of it all, Naomi recognizes that God is working. That God is moving in her life. It may be hard to endure, but Naomi sees God's hand moving. She doesn't like it. It's hard to bear. But his hand is moving in her life. Verse 22, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. I mean, we have these constant reminders of Moab, and this is designed to remind us that it's not a good place for a God-believing Jew to go. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So it seems that if we understand God's law and the famine and the end of the famine, it seems that Israel has repented. They've turned back to God. God's restoring the land. Ruth and Naomi walk into this town that is bustling with activity, harvesting their most recent crop. There's an abundance here that's being described. They settle in and Ruth goes to work gleaning in the fields where she encounters a man named Boaz. Boaz protects her, provides for her, shows her favor. And when she tells Naomi who she met, Naomi does this. Verse, Ruth 2, verse 20. She says to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness is not forsaken the living or the dead, Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, we, we see for the first time in Naomi's story that Naomi has some hope. There's light on the horizon. And that hope is tied to a man that what we will find out as we continue to read the story, tied to a man who's known to be a godly man, a faithful man. And Naomi is praying a blessing on Noah, Boaz. That doesn't sound like somebody who's turned their back on God, does it? She's moved back into her home community. The people in town know about her and Ruth. She hasn't been rejected. She's not an outcast for what she's done. By all appearances, Naomi has struggled mightily, faced incredible loss, faced incredible grief. She's hurting, but... She still has hope. And because of that hope, she acts. She says to Ruth, take a bath. Put on some perfume. Put on some nice clothes. Really, put on some warm clothes. And go lie at Boaz's feet when he's at the threshing floor. Now, again, 
read a book several years ago, it was real popular, it said that Naomi's telling Ruth to go after her man. That Naomi's trying to groom Ruth to go seduce Boaz. Nothing could be further from the truth. That, that, that explanation of what's going on completely ignores what's going on in the culture here. Naomi's saying, clean yourself up. Put on a little bit of perfume. Dress warmly. It's going to be cold on the threshing floor at night. Lie at his feet. And if you understand the Jewish culture, what you understand is that Ruth is, is not being encouraged to go seduce Boaz. She's presenting herself to him as a bride. She's literally saying, symbolically, will you marry me? I mean, that's how it plays out. Because, you know, that, that this whole idea about Ruth going to him to do something unholy, uh, it just doesn't comport with the story. Because Boaz is startled when he finds this woman lying at his feet. Doesn't even know who she is. He can't see it's dark. Naomi's taking a huge risk here. But she's doing it for the welfare of Ruth. She's literally saying to Ruth, you know, we've been mourning over losing our husbands, my, mourning over losing my husband, my sons, but that time for mourning is over. You have to get on with your life. Boaz is a legal candidate to redeem Ruth and Naomi, by the way, to take her as his wife and perpetuate the lineage of Elimelech's family. That's how the law was supposed to work. And if you look closely at what Naomi's doing here, what she's trying to encourage, she's also signaling that her time of mourning is over. That she's got to move on with life. There's some hope on the horizon and we have to embrace it. Ruth is living with her, living in her community. She's become one with Naomi and her people. And they have found a way forward. And Naomi is betting on Boaz's integrity as a godly man and the laws of their people. She is moving in She's moving in faithfulness. Wow. Is that even possible? Can, can we endure pain and suffering? Can we even be vocal about the fact that life sometimes is very difficult and recognize, can we recognize that God has a hand in allowing it to happen, maybe even cause it to happen? Is it possible that Naomi is showing us that you can go through all of this stuff, all of this garbage in life, and remain faithful? Her journey has been rough, but now she's home. And she has hope. Because of that hope, we see Naomi's peace. Ruth 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women, the women of the village, said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Nothing sweeter than that moment in this entire 
scenario. The story started in Bethlehem amid fear and doubt and flight. And the story ends back in Bethlehem with peace and hope. And a look to the future and Naomi is sitting there with her grandson in her lap. And you can just see the smile on her face. So we saw, we saw Naomi's struggle. We saw her distress. Naomi seemed to be a good woman, trapped in a bad situation. She's in a hostile land, lost her family, almost worse yet. She apparently has done everything right if we look at just what the text tells us. We never really hear what Naomi thinks about going to Moab. Perhaps Elimelech didn't ask her. But we know that the folks in Bethlehem very likely thought that it was a huge mistake to travel to an enemy land, leave the promised land. Naomi went. She listened to her husband. And everything went off the rails once they got there. No one would blame her for being bitter. No one would blame her for staying right there. She had two daughter-in-laws that loved her. There was nothing back in Bethlehem for her. Quite likely she'd be greeted with disdain. A lot of people saying, I told you so. Should have never done there in the first place. A lot of whispers in the corners. And we see Naomi's journey. She doesn't remain in Moab. She goes against common sense. She makes a move in faith, decides to go back to her homeland, back to the promised land, back to where people worship her God, back to where she belongs among the children of God. And as a bitter, hurting, grieving woman, she could run from God and his people, but instead, you see what happened? Instead of running from God, she moved towards him. In all of her grief, and all of her pain, she ran towards God. It's an incredible move. She's at his mercy. She's at the mercy of his children. There's no way to characterize Naomi's actions other than total trust in her Father in Heaven. Whose hand, by the way, put her in those circumstances. She confesses it. Where does this get her? Brothers and sisters, it gets her peace. Now, we've talked about this before. We all want things in our lives. They're all things we think we need, but what we're really looking for is peace. We're really looking for that capability to sit and enjoy the presence and the blessings that God has given us. And Naomi sees that peace and while the scene with the grandson is poignant and tender, there's a lot more to Naomi's story. Look, look what God does with Naomi's faithfulness. Look what he does here. Look what he does with her trust in him, even though she's been hurting. Ruth 4.17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. We all know David's in the line of Judah. And that Christ comes through that bloodline. 
What did God do with Naomi's faithfulness? He changed eternity for everybody who receives him. So, there's a practical lesson here, and we need to know it. It's okay to grieve, it's okay to hurt, but it's not okay to run from God. Elimelech found that out, and so did the two boys. Naomi took all of her pain and ran toward God, even though she was sure that he got her into that situation. It's really an incredible move, isn't it? She was equally sure, even though he got her in that situation, she was equally sure that he was the only one that could get her out of it. She believed in the sovereign God. So she ran to him. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Wow. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what pain you're carrying. But God says, come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. You'll find peace. I love that. Good lesson, amen? But there's more here. Look at the last four verses of Ruth. Watch what God is doing. Verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hetzron. Hetzron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. What a boring genealogy. Oh, why do we have to read these things? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author of Ruth begins his genealogy with Peretz. Uh, Peretz's father was Judah. Why not start it with Judah? It's kind of odd, isn't it? Watch this. Judah lived midway through the 15th century B.C. His son Perez came after him, who probably lived midway through the 14th century B.C. The timeline for the book of Judges starts shortly after Perez dies. Now watch this. We know the book of Judges was a tough time for Israel. Everybody did what seemed right to them. Some judges were good, a lot of them were bad. The area of the kings comes after Judges. Judges produces this country that wants to have a king just like the countries around them. Really just saying, we're just like everyone else. No longer recognize God as their king. So Judges was just a dark time in the history of Israel. They've fallen so far they no longer recognize God as their king. And this genealogy, starting with Perez, who is just before the beginning of Judges, works through the timeline of the Judges, we see God's hand moving throughout the whole timeline in Judges. God is faithfully providing for his people and faithfully being true to his promises to Israel. Regardless of how far they've fallen, regardless of how bad they do, regardless of how many bad judges they have, how many bad kings they have, God is still working in the life of Israel. As a matter of fact, God takes all the stumbles and all the failures that we see in judges and kings, 
He took all of Elimelech's bad decisions, all of Naomi's pain, and all of her grief, and used them to advance the ultimate expression of his glory, which is his son who would take on flesh and die on the cross for you and me. Knowing all this, knowing how God functions in the, the history of his people, what do you think what do you think he could do with your life? What do you think he could do with my life? God is faithful and true. He's given us promises that cannot be abrogated. We can't do anything to nullify God's promises. So the story of Naomi encourages us to take all of our hurt, all of our disappointment, all of our pain, all of our grief, and run to God. He says, come to me. You will find rest for your souls. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks, Father, that you are faithful and true even when we are not. We give you thanks, Father, that you're standing there when we stumble, when we fall, when we fail. Lord, that you pick us up, dust us off, Point us forward and say, look to my son, don't look to your circumstances. Give thanks to me in all things, even the painful ones, and I will give you hope. Lord, let us place our hope in your son alone and the work he did on the cross. We thank you for a Naomi that is able to do that. And we pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week with Abigail. It's Pastor John back again. I want to thank you one more time for joining us. If you were blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. If you're watching on YouTube, click on the like button below, that little thumbs up at the bottom of the video. If you're listening on Sermon Audio, perhaps you can comment on the sermon or even share the sermon with someone else. Either way, we'd love to have you as subscribers on either site. We'd love to hear from you as well. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Just search for WBFVA. And we're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you would like us to pray for you and what you'd like us to pray for. Let us know if you have any comments. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we'd love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.